All right, if you got your Bibles with you, we're going to be taking a look now, Lamentations chapter 2. As we do, we want to remind you as we come through uh, this section of Scripture, we're looking at acrostic poems, acrostic poetry. Chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 4, chapter 5 are 22 verse chapters. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. Each verse begins with the corresponding letter. Just like if we were to do from A to Z, it would be 26. So each, each verse begins acrostically until you get to chapter 5. There are still 22 verses in chapter 5, but it follows no pattern. There's more chaos, more um, a lot more passion and feeling that's going to come flowing through in chapter 5 as uh, that's like the, the peak, the height of, um, of the despair if, of those watching the things that are happening. Uh, almost like watching the news tonight. So it's kind of like that, maybe, maybe a little worse. So chapter 3 has 66 verses, 22 times 3 each of the first three verses would be in the corresponding letters in the acrostic. So, so it's, it is the focal point of the answer to the despair and lamentations. So lamentations, there are two great things that we want to pull from it. In chapter 3, this primary focus is the faithfulness of God, even in the midst of our despair. So in chapter 3, verses 21 to 24, we have this this uh, central idea, right? But this I call to mind, therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. That's the answer to our despair. But the other point that we want to make sure we hold on to as we go through lamentation is that despair is real. Never does God say, hey, stop that. You're not allowed to have those feelings. You're not allowed to, to feel despair. You're not allowed, never, never. You go through the Psalms and you have multiple Psalms laid out from an attitude of, of uh, despair, calling out to God. That's what we're supposed to do, right? So when we look at lamentations, there's several things that we want to understand about a lament. A lament was an opportunity for the lamenter to give words to his protest, right? Like Job. You remember Job? When, when all his family dies, God doesn't ever condemn Job. It says in all Job's lamenting, God, he never charged God with a wrong. But he lamented. He called out to the Lord. He, he made his cries heard. We also see that it is a, a way to process overwhelming emotion. And there's a lot of overwhelming emotion as we work through lamentations. And it was a place to voice confusion. What are you doing, God? What's going on? Now, we've all felt that way in our own lives. The reality is when we look at lamentations and the attitude from the lamenter as he calls on, on, out to the Lord, it's never condemned. The goal of lamentations is to provide sacred dignity 
for human suffering. Not fake answers, right? I mean, ultimately, we, we all know God has a plan, right? But how many times has the comment, God has a plan, helped in the case of someone losing a child? I, I sat at a funeral service for a father who ran over his infant with a truck. There, here's the reality that we talk about in these times, and we're going to see it specifically in chapter 2, is we need to learn the lesson that Job's friends practiced. Job's friends did a really good job for seven days. So I'm going to try to encourage us to do what Job's friends did for seven days. On the eighth day, stop following Job's friends. The first seven days, you're good, right? So this is, these are some of the attitudes. So when, the, when Lamentations talk about, talks about the idea of despair being real, it's not to minimize the emotion. We don't want to minimize the emotion. It's okay to feel despair. It's important to know where the answer is. Great is your faithfulness, right? I'm going to trust in God, even in my despair. That's... That's our answer that we hold on to in Lamentations, but never in an effort to sweep the emotion under a carpet and pretend you don't feel that way, right? The, the lamenter was being truthful and, and honest, and like Job, didn't charge God with wrong. He's not charging God with wrong, but he's being truthful about how he feels. My whole world is collapsing. Everything is falling down around me. And, and laying out that lament. So in, in Lamentations 5, this is how, <coughs> excuse me, this is how Lamentations ends. We talked about it a little bit last time. The final verses. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old. Unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. So the final words of the lamenter, right, is he's still in that place. Oh, Lord, forgive, you know, Lord, restore, unless you're still mad at us. You're still angry at us. And so there's this, but the lamenter is still calling out to him, right? It's not, it's not turning away from the Lord. That, that lament's not going to get you anywhere. But this attitude of going to him. And remember, the word for lamentations in Hebrew is ekah, ekah, which just means how. We chose a big, long English word, lamentation, which means weeping, because there's a lot of weeping in it, right? But ultimately, it's asking the questions. Everybody asks in intense tragedy, Why? How, what, and so at the end of Jeremiah's prophecy, he pens these lamentations. Now, nowhere in the book of Lamentations does it say Jeremiah wrote it. So a lot of people wonder who the author of Lamentations is. But if you remember when we began Jeremiah, I told you, Jeremiah, you can look it up in Chronicles, Jeremiah sang the laments for Josiah. So Jeremiah was equipped with the tools to do laments. He sang at Josiah's funeral. He gave the lament. 
And so, in the same way that he began his ministry lamenting the loss of a godly king, he ends his ministry lamenting the loss of a nation. Right? The nation's gone. So this is where we find ourselves. So in chapter 2, remember chapter 1, it was a, a poem of lament given from the viewpoint of a woman who's watching all this destruction and there's nobody there to comfort her. That's, that's the point of the poem. This is the emotion. This is the feeling, right, that is, that is flowing through. And the second one is focused on the source of their judgment. The source of their judgment. The judgment of the nation, uh, the collapse of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, and the source of that being the wrath of God. So this is the focus here. It begins in verse 1, Lamentations 2. How the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. And when we look at scripture in 1 Chronicles 28.2, David, as he has this, this great goal of building a temple, there's no temple, there's a tabernacle, and the people had really ignored the tabernacle uh, for quite a while under that time. David wants to build the Lord a house. We know David doesn't build it. His son, right? Solomon does. But in 1 Chronicles 28, 2, it says, King David rose to his feet and said, Hear me, my brothers and my people. I had it in my heart to build a house of rest for the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, for the footstool of our God. What was the, what was the point of the Ark of the Covenant in the temple? It, it, it sat in the temple uh, in the Holy of Holies. On the last time we knew where the Ark of the Covenant was is the time of Jeremiah. After that, there's a lot of questions, less answers. So we see here the, the, the David calling it the footstool of our God. And so he said, I made preparations. He made plans for the temple, right? And we know Solomon is going to build it. The footstool of the Lord being the Ark of the Covenant and the resting place of the Ark of the Covenant is a representation of the place of God's mercy, right? That's what the Ark of the Covenant was. What, what's the Ark of the Covenant? It's just a box. What do they put in the box? Symbols of man's failure. Ten commandments that were broken. Right? There was a bowl of manna in there. There's a variety of things that found its way into the ark. But each one represents some area in which the nation of Israel had failed. Failure to keep the law. Failure to appreciate God's provision. And so the box had the, a top. In the Greek, the top is called the hilasterion. It's the mercy seat. And the mercy seat was where the blood was sprinkled. And as long as the mercy seat covers the failures of Israel, then God's mercy reigned over the people. When it says God has forgotten his footstool, he's left the place of mercy. And they were under judgment, right? 
And that's what they're experiencing. So here, the, uh, Jeremiah in his lamentation is declaring, he has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. It was not a day of mercy. It was a day of wrath. Right? It was a day of wrath. And so this is what he's, he's, he's pointing out. Um, in verse 2, the Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the inhabitants of, of Jacob. In his wrath, he has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. <clears throat> he has brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn from them his right hand in the face of his enemy. Now, one of the things that, that the Lord often spoke of in regard to Israel was that his right hand was with them, the hand to deliver the people, to deliver them in the face of their enemies, to carry them through. But now, after, we'll call it uh, loose, 490 years of rejection uh, to the things that God had laid out for them, they found themselves no longer under the protection of the right hand of God. Now they were under his wrath. And so the nation was consumed. All consumed. Look, after Nebuchadnezzar and Nebuzaradan left the third time Jerusalem, there was no Jerusalem. There was a, a small smattering of people who in their last great act of defiance still defied the Lord and ran to Egypt. The nation is utterly gone. The only remnant of the nation is left in Babylon. But everything is brought down all around them. They are swallowed up without mercy. It's the end of compassion and mercy. We, we, there's this concept in Scripture that we, we live uh, under God's grace and mercy and compassion. And we sing songs about the fact that His compassions fail not. But there's a day of judgment. There is a day. His mercy is a lot longer than His judgment. Right? His anger is for the evening. Joy comes in the morning. Sorrow in the evening. Joy in the morning. You're not angry forever. But there is a point in which God judges his people. And in this case, the nation of Israel and Jerusalem and the temple is utterly cut off. And the conquest of Jerusalem becomes a reminder. Several reminders he gives us in verse 4. He, this is speaking of God, has bent his bow like an enemy, with his right hand set like a foe. So God was standing against Israel, not for them. God was standing against them. He has killed all who were delightful in our eyes, in the tent of the daughter of Zion. He has poured out his fury like fire. The Lord has become like an enemy. Doesn't say the Lord is our enemy. He has become like an enemy. Why? Because he, now he's bringing judgment against his own people. For what? For rejecting his word. For rejecting the things that he had brought out to him. For killing the prophets. For turning to the Lord their back and not their face. You all know what that is, right? 
come on. I'm looking at most of you have kids if you're not kids. At some point, you've been having an intense heart-to-heart talk with your kids, and they have turned to you their back and not their face. But you weren't done. Do you remember? Well, the point that the Lord is making is, you've done that to me. And so, he says he has swallowed up Israel. The Lord has become like an enemy, has swallowed up Israel, swallowed up all its palaces. He has laid and ruined its strongholds, has multiplied in the daughter of Judah, mourning and lamentation. So now there's great sorrow, right? Just like any time there's correction within the home, usually you have to multiply mourning and lamentation to get the point across. So what is it that Jerusalem is a reminder of? The reminder is that now in this time, uh, the Lord is acting as their enemy. And he's reminding them of the extent of their sorrow. And it never had to be that way. Jeremiah said that over and over again. You have to go to exile, but you don't have to die. The extent of their sorrow. Then he goes on in verse 6 and he lays out the idea of how this judgment has fallen on their places of worship. Uh, He says he has laid waste his booth like a garden. Laid in ruins his meeting place. The Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath. And in his fierce indignation, he has spurned the king and the priest. So their way of worship, the places of worship, the temple mount, the places of festival and sacrifice, all gone. So every way that the people used to relate to God has been taken away. Everything, every way they they related, every person that stood before them for the Lord, priest and king, have been removed. So you have a, a voice that will remain with the people through Daniel and Nehemiah and Ezra who are going to bring back the remnant, a small group of, of Israel that will come back to Israel. That they will build a pitiful temple that the old men who were children at the destruction of the temple will weep over for the sorrow of, of the lack of skill to build as it was when, when God had benefited the people with skill to build it. They're going to build it. They're going to be called to put their eyes on the Lord. And then you're going to have 400 years of silence. And the next prophetic voice they will hear will be John the Baptist calling out in the wilderness. Make straight paths for the Messiah is come. So this is this is all part of the crescendo of history for the nation of, of Israel. The crescendo of their disobedience until they will see um, their king come to them lowly and riding on the donkey, a colt of a donkey. The Lord has scorned his altar, says in verse 7. Disowned his sanctuary. He has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They raise a clamor in the house of the Lord like a day of festival. So the enemies are partying on the Temple Mount, but there's no more festival for Israel. There's no more place of worship. There's no more altar. All of that has been destroyed. 
So they've seen the, the, the exchange of the praise of the people in festival and celebration of God's provision uh, being exchanged for the sound of their enemies rejoicing over them. <clears throat> Verse 8. The Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. He has stretched out the measuring line, did not restrain his hand from destroying. He caused rampart and wall to lament. They languish together. Everything comes down. The walls come down. Verse 9, her gates have sunk into the ground. Uh, in fact, still today when you visit Israel, you go to Jerusalem. Uh, I don't remember the numbers. Why don't I remember the numbers? I don't remember. I don't remember why. Memory is such a careful thing. I don't, I don't remember. Somewhere in a neighborhood of, of 100 or better times, the nation of, or the city of Jerusalem has been destroyed and rebuilt and destroyed and rebuilt, destroyed and rebuilt. And so when you go there today and you want to see things that Jesus saw, uh, oftentimes it's found in basements of buildings that reuse the stones that were part of the praetorium or reuse things that were in the area. There's very few. There's a couple of sites, the southern steps of the Temple Mount and uh, of this little road that winds up toward uh, w what we believe is Caiaphas's house, that actually the stones are as they were. So those are, we get to the southern steps of the temple, and I sit on those steps. I don't like the fancy ones that have been remodeled. I want the broken ones because that goes back, those go back to Christ. They go back to his time. But it's so, so many times that city has been utterly destroyed, walls torn down. But every time they, they build it up, they try to, you know, build it back up. They build arches, and they build the city on top of the rubble. And they build arches, and they build the city on top of the rubble. So when you go, you can actually walk through the, the uh, rabbinical tunnels, which go under the city, and you walk on roads that go back in time, that once was the surface of the city, now are under, you know, I don't even know, tens if not hundreds of feet of stone above you, of rubble of the city being rebuilt. The Lord, when, when Jerusalem comes down, Jerusalem comes down. And until she sees the return of her king, she will never see the glory uh, that she had in those days. So Jerusalem is, is brought down. Listen, her gates sunk. She's ruined, broken her bars. Her kings and princes were among the nations Listen, the law is no more, her prophets find no vision. Three things are laid out here uh, as part of the judgment and the idea of the vision of the nation being gone. One, the kings by their wickedness have forfeited their right to rule. There is no more king. Two, the priests have forfeited their right to administer the Torah. So the priests are pulled down. And three, the prophets, by their faith, faithlessness, have no longer received God's visions. No vision, no ruler, no priest. So this is what the, they're mourning. The kings and princes are among the nations. The law, the Torah, is no more. Her prophets find no vision from the Lord. 
All of those things are turned off. Proverbs, right, 29, 18. Um, probably most of us recognize the King James or New, New King James Version where there is no vision, the people perish, right? Where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint. What's the point? Blessed is he who keeps the law. When there's no vision, no law, no ruler, the people don't follow the law. If you have no prophet, priest, and king, and no one fulfilling those roles, prophet, priest, and king, the people perish. They just keep going. Right? There is a prophet, priest, and king who will rule one day. Yes? And the Lord calls us to be a nation of priests, a holy nation set apart for his purposes. We are stones in his building to fulfill that purpose while we lift our eyes. I know, you know, I don't know how you guys feel when you, when you watch the news. I'm not overly excited by any of it. But what it makes me want to do is lift my eyes up, Right? you know from whence your salvation comes. But it's not going to be a man who saves us, right? Our salvation comes from the Lord. When you're in trouble, he says, lift up your eyes above the mountains. Where does your help come from? Our help comes from the Lord, right? Maker of heaven and earth, we lift our eyes up to him. Man will muck it up. God is our deliverer. So now he's going to turn his attention. He's kind of dealt with the, the fall of Jerusalem, um, the wrath of God being, being poured out in the, in the picture of that uh, uh, attitude. And then he's going to now kind of zoom in a little bit to the suffering of the people. Verse 10, the elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground in silence. That's the best way to help someone who's mourning. Job's friends did that for seven days. And the Bible says in the book of Job, after seven days, they opened their mouth and everything went to pot. But for seven days, it was perfect. They sat in humility before God and mourned beside their brother. That's how you help. The problems we get into is when we start to talk. Unless the Lord has given you words, and you better know, because you don't want to know what happens to false prophets, right? We all know what happens. You should never say, thus saith the Lord, if the Lord hath not spoken, right? So they sit together in silence. This is the elders and the people. This is an act of humility when you've come under God's judgment, life is full of despair. We've lost everything. There's not any griping. There's not any carrying on. There's a bunch of people sitting in the dust in humility before God. It's a good posture. God says he resists the proud, but what? He gives grace to the humble. To the humble. So the elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground in silence. They have thrown dust on their heads and put on sackcloth. We've seen that posture before in the Bible, right? 
Some would call it a posture of repentance. I would call it a posture of humility. When the king takes off his crown, comes down into the dust, lays his crown down, puts dirt on his head, and uh, wears sackcloth, old sacks. When he, when he does that, that is a statement of humility. I'm not here as the king and the man with all the answers. I'm here as just another human coming before God in an attitude of humility. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people, because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. So the picture is watching the destruction, watching children who have perished, watching all the broken lives, and he's saying, I have no more tears to cry. The, The bile, the acid in my stomach is all I can spit out on the ground. Just... Dry heaving over the emotion of the, of the situation, the perishing of the young. And then what do the young do as they're perishing, as they're starving in the streets? They cry to their mothers, where is bread and wine, as they faint like wounded men in the streets? So they're crying to mommy, mommy feed me while they starve to death. And the, the echoing thing in our minds ought to be Jeremiah walking through the people saying, you don't have to starve. Just humbly walk out of your house, walk out of Jerusalem, and accept the imprisonment of Babylon. You don't have to die. But now, the destruction has come, the city brought down, the Children starving in the streets, and the lamenter is crying out about the voice of the children. He's cried so many tears, he doesn't have tears anymore. They fall like wounded men in the streets as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. So mom's holding them like mom would, right? And until they die, till their last What kind of tears would you cry? Yeah. Just like his. Just like hers. My eyes are spent with weeping. What can I say for you? To to what compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken to you that I might comfort you, O daughter of Zuin? For your ruin is as vast as the sea, and who can heal you? The lamenter is saying, there's not any words for me to tell you. What are you going to say? You can say, well, I'll just, I'll just say the truth, you know. Yeah, you didn't have to die and your child didn't have to, you didn't have to be in this place. What, did that bring comfort? No. Are you crazy? The person sitting in the dirt holding their dead baby knows. You don't got to tell them that. What will you give them for comfort? He says, your ruin is as vast as the sea. Who can heal us? Who can bring an end to our suffering? 
In the Bible, there was only ever one character who could bring an end to their suffering. Jesus. Messiah. That's it. That was, the, that was the only one. Now in verse 14, he, after talking about the perishing of the young and no end of their suffering, he, he starts to speak about the misleading of the prophets. The misleading of the prophets who, who want to try to say something that's going to bring encouragement. Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes. The time for restoring their fortunes was for the, the prophets who were lying to the people to tell them of their iniquity. That was before judgment. Call the people to repent. But they would say, you don't need to repent. You're God's favorite people and the Lord's not going to let you be destroyed. They didn't. They did not bring, they did not expose the iniquity. They brought deceptive visions. No exposure of sin. Hey, this is sin. You can't do this. And then they misinterpret God's judgment. They have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. So as the, the baby's crying on their mother's bosom in a city that's been destroyed, of a people suffering, a suffering they didn't have to suffer if they would have humbled themselves and accepted God's judgment, and the Lord turns his eyes toward the misleading of the prophets who did not call the people for their sin, who did not, who rather presented deceptive, lying visions and misinterpretation of God's judgment. This is not God's judgment. Don't worry, this is not God's judgment. This is something else. God would never judge us, we're his favorite. Verse 15, you see the ridicule of the enemies. All who pass along the way clap their hands at you. They hiss, they wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. It's like an attitude of being laughed at by your uh, captors. They're mocking. They're laughing. They become the joke. They become the joke. Oh, yeah, you're God's favorite people. Yeah, sure you are. Look at you now. Look at where you are. They clap, they hiss, they wag their heads, they mocked. In this, the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth. Even, you, there's, even if you travel to Jerusalem and, and you see the city of peace that has had more battles fought in it than most other cities on earth, you cannot in any way begin to see the way that city looked under Solomon. Can't begin to see the beauty of the temple and the beauty of, and, and the place it had been called the perfection of beauty. Now, you go to Jerusalem today, the walls are full of bullet holes. 
There's not one gate you can walk in that does not have bullet holes all around the gate. The city of peace will not know peace until the king returns. Then she'll know peace. So here you have the morning. All your enemies rail against you. They hiss. They gnash their teeth. They cry. We have swallowed her. All this is the day we long for. Now we have it. We see it. We've put her down. The Lord has done what he purposed. Now the lamenter's voice. The Lord has done what he purposed. He has carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. He made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. The Lord, all the way back in Deuteronomy, before the children of Israel entered into the land, God said through Moses, hey, if you go and you'll walk with me and you'll follow my statutes, there can be no end to your kingdom. But if you go and you follow other gods, let me tell you what your history will look like. And he rehearsed it all. Everything that would happen to them. Now God, he knows where they're going. He lays out in Deuteronomy in that same, in that same place, blessing and cursing, life and death, I have set them before you. Choose life, he says. Choose life. Walk in the path of life. But here we find in the, in the lamentation the peak of the mockery that they face against their enemies that had overcome them. Psalm 48, 2 says of Israel, Beautiful in elevation is the joy of all the earth, Mount Zion and the far north, the city of the great king. That's what they used to say when they saw Solomon's. You can't even begin to imagine what it's going to look like when Jesus is there. He's going to, Jesus would say, oh, you think Solomon was great. You should look at the flowers in the field. They're more beautiful than Solomon's. There will be a day. There will be a day. So these people, these who have conquered them, mocked them, and uh, manipulate the truth. You know, oh, this is the day we finally beat you. You're not God's favorite. They drive them to, to recognize. And what one of the mistakes that the conquerors make is they ignore that the conquering is a judgment of God. That's why there's an oracle of the nations among every prophet, because all the nations will one day face the same, Right? Is there any of us who are not guilty before God? Now we move to the appeal in the poem, the appeal to God. So their heart cried to the Lord, O wall of the daughter of Zion, let tears stream down like a torrent night and day. Give yourself no rest, your eyes no respite. Now the people are there's a call of repentance, a cry out to the Lord. How many times do we see this in the book of Judges? You ever read the book of Judges? The book of Judges goes like this. The people forget about God. Then the people find themselves under oppression by the other nations. In their oppression, the people remember God, cry out to God for a deliverer. 
God hears them, sends a deliverer, a judge. The deliverer comes and delivers the people. They enter into a time of plenty, a time of prosperity, wherein they forget the Lord. And the cycle repeats over and over and over and over throughout the history of men. And certainly throughout the history of Israel. So here we see this is what's happening. Now the people are making their appeal to God. Their hearts cried aloud to the Lord. A wall, the daughter of Zion, tears streaming like a torrent, night and day, saying, give no rest. Don't give your eyes any respite. Arise and cry out in the night. At the beginning of the night watches, pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. Call on the name of the Lord. The lamenter is telling them, call on the name of the Lord. It's a call to repentance. Change direction. There's nothing you can do for your children greater than calling on the name of the Lord. In Psalm 119, 145, he said, the psalmist writes, With my whole heart I cry, answer me, O Lord, I will keep your statutes. With my whole heart I cry. This is what the, what the uh, lamenter is calling for. Their cry cried to their heart cried to the Lord. Let those tears stream night and day. Lift up your eyes. Give yourself no rest. Call out to the Lord. And a cry to the Lord goes in verse 20. Look, O Lord, and see. With whom have you dealt thus? Should women eat the fruit of their womb, the children of their tender care? Should priests and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? In the dust of the streets lie the young and the old, my Young women, my young men, have fallen by the sword. You have killed them in the day of your anger, slaughtering without pity. You summoned as if to a festival. My terror is on every side. And on the day of the anger of the Lord, no one escaped or survived. Those whom I held and raised, my enemy destroyed. The cry lifting their eyes to the Lord, crying out to him over all the loss, all the things that have been forfeited in their rebellion, in their disobedience, and through God's judgment. They're crying to the right place. They're doing the right things. But you've lost everything already. What happens to the nation who cries out to the Lord before that day? What happens to the people who don't wait till the destruction has occurred? You know, we probably had a, a sharper cry for prayer in these last four years than ever before. It's really too bad we didn't do it sooner. Right? Right? We wake up and we look around and we think, oh, how did we get here, right? How did we get to this place? But the, but the roots of our judgment were laid long ago. We've been sowing seeds to the wind a long time. 
What did the Bible say you would reap? Sow to the wind, you will reap the whirlwind. Now, we should still do all those things, right? Call out in humility. If we feel despair, it's okay. Feel the despair. Cry out to the Lord. Is he able to save? Absolutely. Will he? I don't know. Call. I know what happens if you do nothing. <laughs> right? Call out to the Lord. Because chapter 3 is the peak, right? Six, triple, three times as long a poem as every other poem. Why did, why did they write it that way? Because that's your answer. Where's your answer? Where's your answer to all the despair? Your answer to all the despair still remains the same. You look up for people who preach through Lamentations. They all focus in Lamentations 3. Nobody likes to teach 1, 2, 4, 5. Why? Because it's a lot of crying and weeping. But that's a reality, right? That's the truth of what's going on. So what do we want to focus on? Call this to mind. I call this to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love, God's faithfulness to his people never ceases. Was God faithful to the remnant in Jerusalem? The answer is yes, but the remnant wasn't in Jerusalem. Where was his remnant? They were in Babylon in chains. Where was Daniel? In Babylon. Where was Ezekiel? In Babylon. Where was the remnant? In Babylon. Where was the rebellious? In Jerusalem. The ones who rejected, rejected, rejected. He said, I call this to mind and I have hope. The faithful love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. What is my portion? Is my portion the city? Is my portion the temple? Is my portion getting what I want? He says, the Lord is my portion. The lamenter says, everything I need is the Lord. The Lord is everything I need. I need him. Therefore, where is my hope? Is the hope in my nation? Is the hope in my party? Is my hope in the politics? Is my hope in something else? He says, my hope is in who? The Lord. Why? Because the Lord's my portion. He is everything I need. He will be faithful to his remnant. Now, you might end up a slave, but you'll still be, he's still faithful to you. Because you didn't need the stuff. All you need is him. This is the answer to our lament. My hope is in the Lord. He is everything I need. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity that we have, God, to come before you and, and acknowledge the reality of despair, the reality of pain in life, the reality of suffering, the reality of, of, the, of the fact that when we turn our back on the truth of God, judgment will come. 
the Lord said of Manasseh, there was more blood of the innocent on his reign than any other king. He reigned for 55 years. Yet at the end of his reign, Manasseh turned his eyes to the Lord. There was grace for Manasseh. But there was still judgment for the rebellious. The faithful were taken to Babylon in chains. And the rebellious cried in the streets. You see a similar picture painted in Revelation chapter 18. In Revelation chapter 17. Revelation chapter 19. You see the cries of those who have found themselves under God's judgment. Shaking a fist at one whom they will not have to rule over them. But the Lord is faithful to his own. To those who find that the Lord is my portion. In him will I trust. Great is your faithfulness. God, may we recognize in the sights and sounds of this world that there's nothing here to satisfy me. May we recognize that that which satisfies will always come from you. That if I look around in this world, as C.S. Lewis said, and I find that I long for something that this world cannot satisfy, I was made for somewhere else. And there will be a day when we see the return of the king. And what a day that will be. Help us keep our eyes on the prize. And may we always praise your name. In Jesus' name. Amen.